Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I just sat down there and stopped singing for a second because I was all caught up in listening to you guys sing. It was beautiful. Thank you for that. God is in the manger, and you are right here. A person in a chair, a body full of thoughts and desires, your mind a world unto itself, a whole lifetime of experiences, joy and pain and boredom, You are an embodied soul, not body and soul separate, but intricately connected, an incarnate spirit, conceived and knit together inside a woman, your mother, formed together carefully and particularly, you are not repeatable over nine months inside her womb, born in a rush of blood and water. It's a boy or it's a girl, born through the pain of another, ideally born out of love and into love, but no family is ideal, of course, and some of us experience that more and some of us tragically less. But born nonetheless, a miracle, and immediately full of needs you're in no control over. An ache, perhaps, the new baby has to be back in the womb, But of course, the baby can't put words on that. You couldn't put words on that. So you cried until they put you right here on your mother, on her chest, and you heard her heartbeat. And it sounded familiar. I know that sound. It's a little bit quieter now, but that's the sound from the world I just came from. And thus began your life journey and mine, something like that anyway. And now you're here, right here, some years later, some many, many years later, (laughs) with varying sorts of needs and longings and the complicated life. And God is in the manger. What does the one, you and me, embodied souls full of longing, have to do with the other? A man born a long, long time ago in Bethlehem, who we Christians say is God embodied. A lot, of course. (laughs) Of course, a lot. One has a lot to do with the other. We are born full of need and longing, so much so that one theologian puts it like this. He says, longing actually defines our entire lives. At the core of our experience, at the center of our hearts, there is longing. We are not fulfilled persons who occasionally get lonely. Restful people who sometimes experience restfulness. Or persons who live in habitual intimacy with episodic um, battles with alienation and inconsummation. No, the reverse is much truer, he says. We are lonely people who occasionally experience fulfillment. Restless souls who sometimes feel restful and aching hearts that have brief moments of consummation. It's the loneliness of Genesis 3, he's describing, I think, of humanity through the lens of the evil one's great lie. 
that God is probably holding back something really good and that you're actually on your own and you should go out there and get it. Get what you need. You'll be like God, the serpent said in the garden, eat this fruit and see. The tragedy of this lie, of course, is that Adam and Eve were already like God, made in his image. And before this, they were naked and with no shame. Their bodies even, a glorious physical manifestation of their full person union with God and with each other in the garden. God wasn't holding back his goodness, instead holding back the boundaries of his good world, holding the boundaries. But with this lie, humanity allowed the boundaries to be breached right at the heart of things. And the result? You see it in the text. Shame. They felt shame immediately. They hid from each other behind fig leaves. They hid from God. The loneliness at the core of our existence, our longing to be seen and known, but now something's in the way. Cue to Christmas. Let's jump then, scene cut, to the first chapter of John, John chapter 1. It's a very appropriate scene jump. This chapter references Genesis all up and down. But zoom in on John chapter 1, verse 14. It's the quintessential Christmas verse. This verse will be read all over the world in churches of all sorts of denominations, perhaps today, definitely next week on a Christmas Sunday. It says, the word became flesh. Okay, stop. It says some more things, but let's just stop right there. The word became flesh. The word Logos, logos, the meaning, the wisdom, the transcendent, transcendent logic that created everything, the word, became a human being. If you only meditated on this three-word phrase this season, that would be enough. We're definitely still swimming in Pastor Justin's message from last week on the mystery of this whole thing. The word became flesh. If you turn back to the gospel just before John's, the gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, we get the specifics of this event. While Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. The word become flesh. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. God in the flesh, God a baby, God the incarnate spirit, a scandalous, inconceivable thought to most people throughout history. Uh, The other monotheistic face of the world, Islam and Judaism, consider this an absolute heresy. God does not and would not and will never become a man. The incarnation separates our faith utterly and completely from all others. All paths do not lead to the same place. But it's also odd to the modern spiritualist. I know a lot of this kind of person who say, yeah, there's something out there. There is something out there. But it's absurd to believe that that something is more than abstract, that that something is so knowable and visible and specific as a man born at a particular time in a particular place. In fact, Maybe the abstract is preferable 
The abstract doesn't ask much of me. I can wish for things from the abstract. I can try to kind of connect myself with it somehow, but I'm not confronted with the reality of a creator who knows me from the inside out, not only because he made me, though that's a big deal, but also because as Hebrews 2.14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, it says in verse 17. Some would rather God be out there and unknowable because a God who came down comes awfully close. To the manger, no less, because there was no room anywhere else, scripture tells us. That's a lowly, indeed a lonely image God in the manger because there was no room anywhere else. Born into humanity's lowliness and that core loneliness at the center of our experience. To be honest, unfleshing our faith is a big temptation for a lot of us Christians too. It's a way to keep God at a distance. We're more comfortable fragmenting ourselves, talking about giving our hearts and minds to God, and keeping our faith journey entirely in our heads. To really contemplate God in a body means that I might also have to start contemplating my own body. <clears throat> There's a whole lot that goes on in there that I just don't want to mix with my thoughts about God. Thank you very much. <laughs> The translation of the command in Deuteronomy 6.5 that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might is a bit of an unfortunate translation. That word soul is actually the word nephesh in Hebrew, and that actually literally means throat, but they use it all the time to refer to your entire physical being. You are a nephesh. You don't have a soul. They wouldn't say you don't, you don't have a nephesh. You are a nephesh. You are a soul. And it includes your whole physical self. You are one. They're connected. That means if we are to love God with all of our heart, nephesh, and might or strength, there's nothing fragmented about it. Our whole self is meant to love God, not only, but including all of your bodily instincts and drives from your need to eat, to your drive to unite your body with someone else's body, to your desire to be someone, to be seen and recognized, to have children. All of these things are meant to drive you to God. Raw desire in itself the desire a baby is born with, is part of God's creative energy incarnate in our bodies. It's spirit-seeking connection meant to move us to the gifts of this world, but not so that we would stay there, but so that we would recognize the gift giver. Let us not disconnect our bodies from our faith. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our bodily desires can be used wrongly in all sorts of ways. They can and do wreak havoc in the world, in our relationships, and in us. But remember, the devil is a created being himself. He's not a creator. He has no creative power. 
He has no raw material to work with. Anything he can do is a twisting up, a profound misshaping of God's good clay. That's from theologian Christopher West and many others who echo that very, very important thought. He can turn our desire, our good desire for companionship and sex from a catapult to union with God into a pornographic objectification of other image bearers in big and small ways. He can turn our desire for recognition, a good desire, our desire to be justified, a good desire, into behavior that belittles, into lies, into manipulation, into violence. The result is utterly catastrophic, but the desire underneath it, if you can peel back the layers, is to be seen, known, loved, justified, to be somebody in the eyes of God. God in the manger is the most important plot point in this story of untwisting what the devil has twisted. Christ physical body so dignifies ours as part of his very good plan to restore his very good world. It affirms his, that goodness and affirms the goodness of our bodies and puts his passionate desire and longing on display to win us back to himself. Now, God in the flesh has a history of being difficult to get our minds around. And I appreciated, Francis, when you brought up that even today, Christians today are leaving this aspect of our faith behind because it's just difficult. It's just hard. Some of the early Christians were more offended than awed by this mystery because of the particular ways in which the uncreated God would have to willingly submit himself to his own laws of nature in order to enter the world as a created being. They thought especially of the birth as being disgusting, to put it quite simply. The thought was downright appalling. Uh, Marcion, a second century shipbuilder and a prominent, prominent men, member of the church in Rome, he just could not reconcile the total goodness of God, he got that part right, with the total utter evilness of the physical world and of our bodies. He got that part wrong. <laughs> That's the fundamentally Gnostic view of things, that the spirit is good and the body is bad. Heaven is good and earth is bad. That is not the biblical story. But as I said, we can sympathize with this idea. It is strange to think of God coming into the world the same way you and I did, in a rush of blood and water from his mother's body. Marcion could not fathom the thought that our bodies could be so dignified in this way. His birth was actually a stunning marriage between the invisible God and the visible world. A marriage, keep that in mind, this birth was actually a marriage of the seen and the unseen. Marcion's Gnostic tradition says that the goal of the spiritual life is to escape the body to separate body and soul. And in that way, death is a welcome release, a freedom and a shedding of the flesh and bones that held down the true person on the inside. You'll recognize a lot of modern ideas in that thought. 
But the Christian story says, no, death is a tragedy. Death is what entered the world after Adam and Eve believed the lie. Perhaps not an immediate struck down death, but a slow, slow, painful death. Disembodiment, separation from the body is the best end, this view says. But the incarnation says the exact opposite. God is not after radical separation of body and soul, of physical and spiritual world, but after their radical union. If we look at the rest of John 1, 14, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Dwelled here refers to the same word for tent. It's like he pitched his tent here with us. That's the word they use for tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's like Jesus tabernacled among us in the same way that the God of the Old Testament lived among the Israelites, the tabernacle and then the temple. They were meeting points of the physical and spiritual worlds. They were the marriage of heaven and earth, even if a poor sign, not the real thing, not the full thing yet, but it was coming. We keep reading in that verse, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's precisely for this visible, glory-soaked marriage of grace and truth that heaven and nature sing in unison at Christmas. That's the whole point behind that song, Joy to the World. A marriage of heaven and earth, heaven and nature in the bodies of Jesus and Mary. So I said keep Keep this idea of marriage in mind. Are y'all doing okay, by the way? Let me just get a drink. (laughs) Okay. I know this is a lot, perhaps. I don't know what kind of Christmas message you expected today. But anyway, (laughs) this is where we're going. Keep marriage in mind. It's the refrain that runs through the whole of the biblical story. On the opening pages, God creates the world for union with heaven. God basically says... I want you, you're very good, and I want you, and I want to be with you. And then he creates man and woman in his image for marital union with each other, their desire for the other, a picture in this world of God's great desire for his people. Sex gets right at the heart of the gospel and actually has a whole lot to do with Christmas. Again, I don't know what message you were expecting today. Sorry. (laughs) Just a side note here. Okay, an important side note. The traditional Christian sexual ethic of one man and one woman under the God-constituted covenant of marriage is not just because that's the rules we have. You know, that's what he picked, and we got to follow it. It's about telling a true story about God pursuing the world and his people And it's about us receiving him with delight. We tell that story with our bodies, married or not. Mm. I understand um, that to some people in this room, that might sound horrible and and offensive. Um, Maybe it's painful to hear for a number of very real reasons. And I honor that and am sensitive to that. And there's so much more we could say on this topic. But I do want to say, and it is important this morning, that any other sexual ethic tells a different story. 
the marriage of man and woman, of bride and groom, it's not the only picture in scripture of the way God relates to his people. It's not a complete picture, but it does take up a lot of space, so we should pay attention to it. In the story, God's people, you would know in the Old Testament, are often unfaithful to their wedding vows. And at times they completely reject God. And they have some consequences for that, right? But God is still there, holding out his hand, the faithful groom, waiting for his bride's enthusiastic yes in return. He wants it so bad, he comes in the flesh to get us. We've seen the incarnation of marriage as the invisible God with his visible world. And we'll have to skip all the wonderful connections of the marriage in Jesus' life and death and hop on over to the final pages of Revelation, where God and his bride, the church, are united fully and finally in the most magnificent wedding you can ever imagine, union complete. We could look real quick at Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. This is coming up in your Advent reading plan. Now you'll know why. It says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let me put this another way what this great wedding in eternity has to do with you right now and with Christmas. It means that every longing and desire you've ever had from the very first one as a newborn baby will find its ultimate fulfillment at this great wedding feast for which we are preparing. It means that every good desire you've had rightly fulfilled in this life isn't the whole story, be it the sight of a beautiful sunset or a good meal when you're hungry, the loving embrace of a spouse, a full belly laugh with a friend, a paper even well written for class. A flourishing family, health restored, a second chance of life. Many of us have enjoyed these gifts and desires fulfilled, but all of it, it's but a shadow of the soul-filling satisfaction you will know in your resurrected body when face-to-face, seriously, face-to-face with Jesus incarnate, your creator, he says to you, you're home. Can you imagine, can you imagine for a minute the soul-filling satisfaction of looking Jesus, your creator, in the face, and he's saying, come home, you're home. Everything, every joy, the greatest joy you ever will experience in this life is but a shadow. It doesn't matter how great Christmas is going to be next weekend. It is a shadow. And of course, I can't address longings fulfilled without addressing the way I started with longings unfulfilled. 
because that's our reality here and now, isn't it? For the baby who never finds her mother's heartbeat. For the dutiful employee always overlooked for the raise. For the son desiring his father to say, wow, I'm so proud of you. For the wife in here who feels unloved. For the husband here who feels rejected. For the rush of ecstasy and exhilaration you look for on the weekends but never really find. For the healing you long for. For the pain that's sitting in your body right now. For the friend who betrayed you. For the baby you wanted but never got to hold. Behind all of those longings, all of the pain that sits in your body, stored since day one, sits the longing to be unified in body and soul with your creator. So even if it's not fulfilled now, and many of them won't be, this is the promise. This is the good news of the gospel story at Christmas time. The details matter. The specifics of your pain are important. And I hope you feel that. God cares about all of those details. There's a psalm, the reference to which I sent to a friend last weekend, that says, God counts all of your tears, Psalm 56, and carries them in a bottle. That's how important they are to him. But all of these longings, as Augustine put it, tell us that, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And unless you think, now I'm only talking about our heart, 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body, your whole self. You might say, great. Our longings find their home in Christ, but what do I actually do with all of my embodied desires here and now? Some of you perhaps grew up attempting to satisfy them as quickly as possible with whatever and whomever was at hand, and that led you down some dark and winding roads and some painful dead ends. Some of you perhaps were taught to bury your desires, to stuff them down, that's more how I grew up. Um, at least that was heavily implied. That's like the teenager with a body on fire, right? And the church implying, that's kind of bad, you know, that's not good. You better just white knuckle it through these years of fire and maybe you'll get married and then you'll do what you'll do. Did anyone else kind of get that message, that advice? Uh, it's such crummy advice. That's so bad. Okay, I'm just gonna, that's terrible advice. Uh, first of all, it doesn't work very well. It might work a little bit for some people, but it doesn't work very well for most people. And it doesn't do anything to teach our people that their bodies are good and their desires are good and their bodies are actually working the way they are designed to work. And this desire that we feel is absolutely meant to point you to heaven, whether or not marriage is part of your story. If you stuff those desires for too long, they'll come out sideways. Or 
you'll just start feeling numb. We can't have numb Christians. Christians are meant to be fully alive, in touch with all of their desires and senses, and living them rightly, pointed at Jesus. As C.S. Lewis puts it, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. In other words, what does this mean? You affirm the goodness in your longings right when you're feeling it, and you open them to God in prayer as you also confess the way that you have misused them. But I think a lot of times we jump to that, I'm sorry, I'm so bad, shame. You pour the shame on yourself. Why don't you stop and say, thank you for this body I have. Thank you for these desires. Thank you that you made me in your image. Thank you that this is the pulse of life in my body right now. Help me to point it to you, Lord. Fulfill me. God is in the manger, desiring to get all caught up in the stuff of life, in the stuff of your life. Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows us the right response to God as she opens herself, mind, body, spirit, soul, to the work of the spirit in her. And when she does that, Christ is born. In the same way, Rollheiser says, longing that longing we carry helps create the space within us where God can be born. Longing creates in us the stable and the manger of Bethlehem, the trough into which God can be born. Longing, seen rightly, tells us that we are not enough. There are not enough experiences or food or stuff or people in the world to satisfy us completely here and now. There's just not. It points us to another reality to which everything points. It's precisely in our unfinished longings, when you open them up to Jesus, that's where he is content to richly dwell, right in the middle of your suffering and your pain and the waiting. That's what the incarnation and the manger show us, and the cross for which that baby in Bethlehem was destined confirms it. For the joy set before him, he longed and he suffered and he felt the pain of separation from the Father on the cross. Just like humanity has felt the pain of separation from the Father since Genesis 3. And he did it with a human heart and a human body. When they pierced his side, a rush of blood and water new birth. What was the joy set before him? It was the lie undone. It was heaven and earth as one, an eternal wedding with us, with you. Joy to the world. Let's worship him as God in the manger, and let's follow him in living truly human, faithful lives, telling God's story with our whole selves even with our bodies. Band, you can go ahead and make your way up here. I'm going to invite us now into prayer. We're going to do this this morning. How could we not?
I'm going to invite you to invite God into your longings, into your pain, into your loneliness. And I want you to see if you find God in the manger, born right into the lonely place. And then you see God resurrected, your groom at your eternal wedding feast, saying, I've suffered what you've suffered. I've been in it with you. And I did it so you could be here with me. Welcome home. Father, I thank you for this time together this morning. I thank you for each and every individual person in this room, uniquely knit together, born of a woman. born with a core need for you. And Lord, you know, Holy Spirit, you know exactly what those needs are and exactly what those longings are and exactly all the ways in which we've been hurt, we've been neglected, and our needs haven't been met. You've also shared our joy with us. You've also seen us delight in the goodness of your world. And Lord, I pray that you penetrate our hearts this morning, that you give us eyes to see, not through the lens of the lie, but through your eyes. Help us to see the goodness of this world, the goodness of our bodies, the goodness of your creation, and the goodness of the gospel. While your eyes are closed, and you're thinking about a manger, I want you to put both palms facing up in your lap. And then I want you to think about a pain point that you're carrying right now, a longing unfulfilled for a relationship, for healing, for a job, whatever it may be, for a spouse, for a friend. And I want you now to clench your fist. Feel the pain in your hand right now. And then open it again. Release it to God. Lord, we are but humans with longings, and yet you are mindful of us. Would you be beside every person with a longing here this morning? Would you give them a taste of the glory for which they were made? Would you just tell God now, I'm wide open, Lord. I want to open myself to you. I open my longings to you. I open my pain. I open my desires so that God can be birthed in me.
you, Father. I'm going to end on Psalm 63, which just came to me this morning. For anyone longing, and for also those of you who feel a bit numb, who feel like, I don't know where my longings went, I've stuffed them for so long. Meditate on Psalm 63. It says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you, and my whole being, my nefesh, my whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, right here, right now. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. I will be fully satisfied, glory. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Merry Christmas, dear friends. <laughs>